Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture, hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style, downloading to you from New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer and fashion law professor. And today we're joined by celebrated menswear designer, Todd Snyder. Todd, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Awesome. Well, this is long overdue. Uh, you and I have known each other a long, long time uh, and worked together. But uh, but let's get into it for those that do not know your early upbringing and background. Uh, you were born in Iowa, which is not necessarily known as a hotbed for menswear design. Um, how did you get into menswear design? And, and um, you know, how does Iowa and those roots inform it? Well, interestingly enough, I, I mean, I would beg to differ on uh, Iowa not being the fashion uh, capital of the world. Okay. Um, little did I know until I started watching the uh, Holston uh, show on uh, Netflix. Uh, he was actually born in Des Moines, Iowa. So I was kind of like, oh, there's my claim to fame. So one of us made it. Um, I don't think he lived there very long, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I got into menswear. I just always loved clothes when I was a kid, and it was kind of like my secret way of of getting attention. I was I was good at sports, but um, always needed an edge on the homecoming king. So I would always try to out outdo him as far as my you know the way I dress. So I was always into clothes ever ever since I was a kid. I just remember um, I don't even remember how old I was. I was probably twelve, and there was always this you know gene that I wanted and my mom wouldn't buy it because it was expensive and I don't even remember the price but um I came from pretty humble roots and I think I always had a desire to be bigger than that as far as dressing I just you know I had one pair of jeans when I was growing up I had you know maybe four or five shirts I didn't have a lot and then when I I started working at a young age I started working when I was 14 and I just liked clothes and it was just a an interesting, an interesting thing that uh, kind of fueled my desire. And then as I graduated from high school and got into college, I studied, I studied a lot of things. I studied engineering, architecture, business. And then I found out Iowa State actually had a um, textiles and clothing program. So I, and I was working in a men's store at the time and I was like, oh my gosh, this could be it. And so I ended up switching majors. Um, so I was in school for about six years and graduated with the fashion design degree from Iowa State um, and moved to New York. I, I, I really wanted to, to just, you know, be in menswear and be in fashion. Ended up uh, cold calling a bunch of designers, everybody from, you know, Ralph Lauren to Joseph Abood to back in the day, Bill Robinson was a big menswear designer that uh, I loved. And Perry Ellis was another one. And um, I caught the bug and I couldn't graduate fast enough. So I ended up uh, moving here in 92, like full time mm -hmm. and um, never looked back. I've been in New York, you know, almost 30 years. Well, duly noted on Iowa, I stand corrected. And uh, it does always surprise me how many of that whole hashtag menswear crew actually are from the Midwest. I mean, I remember having Nick Wooster on, and as as you know, he's from Kansas. 
uh, and similar background in terms of starting to work at a menswear store and that being very informative. Um, let's rewind a little bit back to your opening statement because I do think it's interesting. You know, we were probably, um, you know, we're, we're contemporaries and, and it was the 80s and there were, you know, fashion was really with a capital F was kind of coming about. Was your style during those early days, was it, was it following fashion? Did you have to have, you know, when you talk about that pair of jeans, did it have to be Levi's? Did you have to have a Ralph Lauren polo shirt? Or were you a little more eclectic and, you know, like a thrift shopper and had to have sort of the red wing boots, but nobody really knew that they were cool yet? Yeah, I, I think back then I, I, I wasn't, because back in the 80s and 90s, the information wasn't readable. So I think the only, my only information that I would get would be from magazines like GQ. I remember discovering I was at you know a friend's house or something and he had it on the coffee table I'm like what is this this is really cool and I might have been like 14 or 15 but that was really kind of where I discovered like oh my god this is great it was a great tool and then when I got into college and I started you know networking with a lot of people I, I discovered you know the fashion magazines which were more of the collections uh they would do these big thick magazines that would cost gosh 200 bucks or something crazy that became my obsession um i remember there were two or three magazines men's were focused back then um you know i think i think one was called civilized man or something like that it might have been a part of the women's wear daily group or something like that but there, there wasn't a lot of men's wear um or was you know around but yeah there wasn't a lot of information and you know the internet really didn't exist and it it, it was hard to find fashion so you know I'd, i get a lot of my information from movies what was your go-to movie by the way what would you say is the iconic 80s fashion movie i think wall street was probably the most like oh my gosh what is that that was so great and kind of gave me of like, I'm, that's what it must be like to live in New York City. Um, but of course, it wasn't. But it was interesting to at least see that and then move here and kind of dispel any of that kind of myth that I thought was there. But yeah, I think Wall Street was probably the most from what I remember. I remember uh, braces, um, suspenders for right. layman's, but um, were the big good. That, that's a solid choice for a top 80s menswear movie you know i mean i was i was worried you were going to say karate kid or something like that <laughs> fast times at ridgemont high i don't know um yeah. anyway, so back to back to back to where we were um it was just a different age when you would kind of discover trends and stuff like that i was definitely into my own little world you know i wore red wing boots when i was a kid so when i was a kid you know I lived kind of in a, in a bubble in Iowa. There was a lot of information um, that was hard to get to. So I wore Red Wings as a kid. I had Levi's. I remember kind of discovering Calvin Klein. Um, I remember seeing the commercial with Brooke Shields and that kind of, for me, was like, oh my God, that was revolutionary. That uh, teenage boy's attention, undoubtedly. <laughs> it definitely did. It sent me to the store. I remember I went to our uh, department store back in the day. It was called Yonkers, and um, they had those jeans. And I remember going and trying them on. I want to say they were close to $100, something silly. And, and back then, that was a lot of money for jeans. And I couldn't figure out how to tell my parents I was 
bought or I had bought them. So I never bought them. I just, and then I didn't actually believe it or not, I didn't like the fit that much. It was a little too, too boxy for me, but I just mem remember being obsessed with fashion and, and Ralph Lauren really became the epitomized the best for me so i probably had something like 35 i remember counting them because i was always collecting them 35 polo so i had i was trying to collect <laughs> the, the whole color. like you could make a rainbow of polos yeah and, and back, browns and grays and exactly other, yeah wow yeah so and i remember when i would travel i remember going to denver colorado and very specifically and i remember looking up the ralph lauren store uh, i think it was in the yellow pages or whatever and i drove over to the ralph lauren store and i wanted to see what mesh polos they had and what colors i just was obsessed with them all the way through college and then when i got to college that's when everything kind of changed like i definitely got a little more bohemian a little less preppy and that's where i started discovering my own style and that's where i kind of said okay brands aren't as important and i wanted to you know i would shop vintage and um, you know, I started wearing Birkenstocks, you know, and I think most people go through that in college, you start to kind of discover yourself and who you are, your likes and dislikes, you kind of want to carve out your own kind of style. Um, and that's really where it began. Uh, but I also was into fashion very heavily. And um, Armani for me was like, Armani and Ralph were it, you know, Armani was in the 80s was it. it there was nothing you, you couldn't watch a movie without someone mentioning armani or you couldn't you know see a runway or a runway show or even red carpet event without people saying i'm wearing armani it just was a very kind of the it brand for that that decade um so i just became very obsessed with both of those but then trying to figure out how do i because they were both very different so i was always trying to figure out how i lived between both of those right right well um yeah armani you know everything from pat riley you know walking the sidelines at lakers games to uh american gigolo and richard beer just looking like amazing yeah fast forward um to new york and you starting at of all places ralph lauren i mean that must have been a dream come true on a lot of levels um and then you um you moved to the gap uh and i guess here, what I'd love to hear your thoughts on are just what was it like working for those massive corporations um, relative to, you know, the way that you work now and the way that, that maybe, you know, other menswear designers work. Yeah, it was a dream come true. I mean, I, I remember coming to New York, it was in December, and I called probably 10 to 12 different menswear designers. And once I kind of figured out that need to find out who the design director is, find out their name if you can. I was reading, you know, Women's Wear Daily or DNR actually it was called back in the day. And I was reading that pretty religiously and studying kind of the industry to know the players. And once I found out the players and was able to get them on the phone, I kind of just used my Iowa charm, as I always say, to kind of get that door open. And I came, got the job at Ralph. I ended up getting like four or five offers. And, and again, and looking back, I was working for free. So, and, and most people are like, you're going to work here for free. Of course, we'll hire you. <laughs> it was like, and I knew I needed that to get in the door. Um, and it was just a dream come true after that. And I remember working at Ralph Lauren and I, I worked off and on there, you know, was an intern 
um, when I was in school. And then when I came back, I worked there as, um, you know, being paid as a freelancer. And that's where I really made my mark. I remember sitting in meetings and, and I just would be very quiet, do my job and not really speak unless I'm being spoken to. And I remember sitting in a meeting, I was wearing a shirt and the design director was like, didn't know my name was like, you know, who makes your shirt? And I said, I do. And she was like, excuse me. She was, I said, me, I made the shirt last weekend. She was, that's amazing. And then all of a sudden she remembered who I was and started calling me by names. And then she called on me as we were like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? So, you know, obviously being, you know, of the age of 20, 21 and, and having an opinion was very daunting to me, but at the same time, I think very relevant for her to, be thinking about like, what do these kids want? You know, what, what does the cause, cause they always kind of fancied themselves as a college age brand that kind of goes into, you know, adulthood. And, you know, that's where I made my mark. And, and I remember just doing things to get noticed, whether it was, you know, I, I cleaned the office. There was always not an office, but there was a storage room that was an office that became the storage room. And everybody just would shut the door and just be like, it is what it is, you know? And I remember I cleaned it and organized it. And that probably more than anything just got me really noticed. Wow. And, um, and then, you know, I got, I got lucky and, and started, uh, I worked at uh, J crew after actually after um, Ralph, that was my, my full-time real job. I was, you know, benefits and all that and I worked there for about two years and then and that was great I mean I worked there in the early days when Emily Senator who was the founder um, was there and got to see her and work with her pretty closely it's it's where I met Jenna Lyons actually her and I both were um, you know straight off the school bus to to go work there and um, that those kind of three or four years were pretty formative for me to to get started and then I, I started talking yeah. being a little humble about those days I mean you know I think you and Jenna and people like you really were instrumental in those being the salad days of, of J crew um, so I'll pause your flow on on history here to just ask the question they were really you know writing massive massive tailwinds for a long time with great collaborations many of them brought about by you what what happened at J crew well, fast forwarding uh, till about 2011, 2012. Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I've, I've often thought about it. I think the biggest thing, there's many factors, the reason why I think J. Crew kind of fell apart. Um, I mean, Mickey is, is a god. I mean, he is truly, I've, I've learned so much from him in the last, I worked for him almost 15 years in total. I worked with him at the Gap and in a very distant relationship, but um, for about 10 years. And then I worked with him at J. Crew, where, you know, I got to see everything. Um, and he's, he's amazing. He's, he's a lot of energy. He's a lot, like he is relentless. He is OCD on every single thing. I think it, it's what makes him great. But by the same token, I think it's the one thing that you know, people get burnt out, you know, and I think, you know, I could speak to that specifically because I ended up leaving in 2009 um, to do my own thing. 
and it was tough it was a tough five years because he's in it and he's in it like every detail he wants to know how can we be better how can we deliver how can we and it just it gets exhausting so i wasn't the only person that left another person um two people actually that i think was really a factor of it kind of falling apart was uh, tracy gardner who was the president at the time and jen foyle who was the head of women's at the time and jen is you know i don't think enough people talk about her she's actually a um at American Eagle now. She's running um, all of American Eagle. And of course the stock's, you know, reflective of what she's been doing. Um, and those two people leaving, I think were the reason why it, it started faltering. I, I think in any business, the thing I've learned, and I actually learned this from Mickey, is that you need balance of creative and commerce. It's the two things that and then there's a bunch of other things in, in you know, in that business uh, model that you need to have. But those are the two things that need to be harmonious. And I think when Tracy left and Jen left, this, the scale tipped too far into the design world. And, yeah. you know, Jenna is magnificent and she's a genius in her own way. And I think because of not having that equal genius on the merchandising end, it, it started coming apart because there's nobody saying, no, I disagree with you. I think we need to go this way or no, I think we need to protect this business. And you always need a balance. You always need this push and pull. And Mickey always called it the creative tension between design and merchandising. And I think that equilibrium was kind of broken and and never really got fixed they had put some other merchants into that role they just didn't have the same level of confidence that i think tracy was really the the true stabilizer of of j crew i was there before she started and then when she started she stabilized the entire process because mickey if you leave him to his own, he can be a bit disruptive. And, you know, with young merchants, they over-listen sometimes, they may not be experienced, yeah. and he's got a lot of information. And if you don't know how to digest that and decode it, it could it could bury you, yeah. um, or you're not taking advantage of the situation. But, but Tracy and Jen were really the true kind of stabilizers and really the success, uh, along with Jenna, that that made j crew amazing but not to get too philosophical but that's essentially my my opinion which i was right there in the midst of it but i do think that's the reason why it started to come apart i think that's a wonderful lesson for a lot of organizations you know even outside of fashion but particularly within fashion where the creative element is is so germane to what the product is ultimately going to be but you can't let it steamroll the, the, the commerce, the business interests, the merchandising. Um, but it's, I've never heard it articulated in that way that really it's, it's highly professional respected individuals who kind of help reinvent it. And that makes perfect sense that if you don't have that backstop on one side or the other, it gets steamrolled and then, then there's the tilt. Yeah, I mean, and Jenna was on track to be one of the, biggest icons in fashion i mean she's truly 
she I remember when I first started working with her, especially when I, I came back to J. Crew. So I've all my places I've worked, I've actually had two stints at. You know, I went, I was at Ralph, I went to Gap, or sorry, was at Ralph, went to J. Crew, then I went to Gap, I went back to Ralph, went back to Gap, and then came to J. Crew. So I've had this very much, I had never thought about it in that way, but I've 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 worked at places uh, twice, which I always tell people never, ever burn a bridge. Uh, that's the other big lesson I learned. Everybody knows everybody. And I'm always fielding calls all the time for recommendations. What do you think of so-and-so? And even if, you know, I worked with someone 10 years ago, I'm still getting phone calls to say, was that person any good? And I'm always like, well, that was 10 years ago. How am I supposed to know what they've done today? So I always caveat it with that. But it, it truly at J Crew, it, it was a magical place to be. I, I was there in the beginning, uh, and and I left, and then it really blew up in a good way for three or four years. But you know, Jenna was so poised to really be that, and still is um, a fashion icon. I mean, yeah. you can only point you can point to a few of them. You know, she's she's definitely one. You know, Anna Wintour is one. I would say you know people like Isaac Mizrahi and you know mark jacobs like she's in that echelon like she she's got you know the style and the confidence and the and the talent to really be that but it didn't have who's the business side of it and and mickey's too busy running the company to be that balance they really needed somebody in there to 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 take what she's doing and make a ton of money they were really poised to really take over the world i just remember they hadn't even touched Japan yet and Japan would have been huge for them yeah well and I mean in the secondhand market of J crew authentic items Japan is as you know huge um, huge no it, it sort of it reminds me of the story of Gucci when Gucci was really languishing and Tom Ford became the creative director but he had the ballast of Domenico de Sole who they were like this one-two punch right they listened to yeah. one another they understood one another and there was that that perfect balance to to sort of relaunch Gucci into you know the echelons that it's surprisingly remained for for decades at this point. Um, but more about Todd Snyder. And now I'm talking Todd Snyder specifically the brand. So you know after really you know being at those best in class places, large organizations, you decided to launch your own brand. Just just take us behind the scenes of the thought process. The, 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 the fears, the joys, um, all of it. And then we'll talk about why you chose to name it after yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I started my collection. I left J. Crew 2009. And this was right after, you know, we were basically in a recession, which in hindsight probably wasn't the smartest timing. Um, and then J. Crew took off like a rocket ship, you know, Michelle Obama was wearing a lot of J. Crew, and it, it became, it hit critical mass at that point. Like everybody knew about J. Crew, knew it was the it brand, and they really took off. Like their business grew, I, I think, you know, in menswear, I know it doubled in, in the, the five or six years after that. Um, and it was incredible to watch. I always felt kind of stupid that I didn't stay on. However, I started my line and it took me a couple of years to get it going. I was doing some side gigs just to pay the bills because it was, you know, definitely the recession. <laughs> it was a little scary to 
leverage your house and everything that you own to start your brand. And um, I always had this dream. I had turned 40 years old right around that time and, and had this goal of, of doing my own thing. So I spent 20 years uh, working for the best. You know, my dad said, if you want to be the best, work for the best. And, you know, Mickey to me was it uh, in the business side of things. But then in the design side of things, it was Ralph. And so I spent, you know, like I said, two stints at Ralph. And I worked there actually when, when John Barbados was there, who was a huge, you know, um, kind of icon in menswear at the time. And uh, so I got to work with him and see how he worked. And I really liked his style, uh, you know, not only his own style of design and, and taste, but I really liked his management style and learned a lot from him um, in that. Just very calming, very kind of meticulous, but not no drama, no, you know, you always hear nightmare stories about designers throwing things and yelling and all that. Um, and not, he had none of that. Not that I was a jerk, but it really re you know, reinforced that I needed to be a nice guy. Cause I, you always hear kind of the, um, kind of the old sayings that, you know, you kind of nice guys finish last. And, you know, if you want to get to the top, you got to call your way and all that. And I never really, um, subscribe to that. I really like just being nice and, and getting along with people. And because of that, I think I was able to like bring a lot of people with me. So when I worked at, at J crew, I was able to bring Frank Mugens with me who ended up heading up men's after I left. And, um, I was able to hire some of the best talent in the industry and, uh, had decided, you know, turn 40 years old that year, it's time for me to go on my own or forever hold my peace. And, um, ended up, doing it and was a bit scary, but, uh, you know, I think three years was really challenging. I got lucky that, uh, a Japanese company discovered me and wanted to back me in Japan, which was amazing. So we had four stores in Japan and then, um, you know, because of that, and because, you know, we were getting a lot of great accolades, uh, GQ best designer of the year. We got nominated for CFDA, I think almost every year. So because of all these things and a lot of momentum was happening, um, you know, American Eagle, Jay Schottenstein and Roger Markfield uh, came into, I had a pop-up store down in Nolita. It was called City Gym. It was built around my champion collaboration. And um, they came in and heard about it and then they had to meet me and they wanted to talk about acquiring me. And then um, Chad Kessler, who's now my boss, had just started and kind of made it happen. He loved it. And I showed him the stores digitally uh, in Japan. And it was, you know, six months later and they, they took me on. It's amazing. And I remember those days, obviously, because we worked together on, on getting that Champions collaboration papered up. And I think, you know, this probably goes in the bucket of, of stick to your guns. I think at some point I said, you know, Todd, we're a little upside down on, you know, why are you paying champion? <laughs> like, shouldn't they be paying you? But yeah. lo and behold, you, um, you really, you know, you tore through that. They became a great, you know, partner during the course of that license and collaboration. But also, you know, going forward, I think a lot of brands felt very comfortable aligning with you because of, 
going to say reverence, but just the the way in which you treated their legacy appropriately. How how is it that you understand brands so well? Um, and I'm telling you that you do. And, and <laughs> from a guy who I mean, at least I, I think I do too. Um, but but what is that knack? And and then as part two of that question, let's go into your decision to name your brand, Todd Snyder. Okay. Um, well, the to. To start, you know, collaborations for me became my secret weapon. I discovered it um, in Japan, actually. I, I just remember, you know, Junior Watanabe and Comte Garçon doing collaborations with American brands and, and, you know, different brands throughout the world. And that was always kind of a Japanese thing. And I used to travel. And that, that was my favorite thing that I got to do. And that's where I... I used to, and I still do love my job so much. I am always, I always joked. I was always shocked that people actually pay me to do what I do. Cause I love what I do. And like, literally, I remember getting up in the morning and I was excited to go to work and, you know, I was working at Ralph or I was working at Gap or wherever I was working. I was so excited because it was a fun job. It always felt, you know, I'm always designing or traveling. Um, you know, they would put you up in nice hotels and they'd fly you business class to, Japan or Hong Kong or whatever. I'd never been in these places. So I really became obsessed with, with traveling, but I also became a shopper. You know, it was like we, we, I would get paid and I know this sounds silly to people, but I would get paid to shop and they would fly me to Paris, to London, to LA, to Tokyo. And we go check out trends. And that's how you get a sense of what, you know, when things come and go and you kind of get used to the fashion cycles. And, and so I really paid a lot of attention. I loved doing it. And I have to say, when I was younger, I used to love shopping. I just, I would, my mom would be like, we're going to the mall. And I'd be like, cool, I'm going, you know, I just would, I just like watching people. And I always like watching trends. And I think for when I travel, I, I love watching what people wear. And you know, my secret in menswear has always been I love London and I love Tokyo. Those are the two places I have to go, especially for fall, to kind of get the lay of the land and see how, you know, anything is new out there, see how people wear it differently in different countries. And Japan was always very interesting. So I did a lot of just studying the way people dress and trends and um what's out there and I think that's really where my love affair for collaborations came from is I've probably been to you know Japan probably 50 times since um love the food love the people love the fashion I I did my first very first collaboration was Jack Purcell and I just love the sneakers we used to style with them in our photo shoots because at the time we didn't have great sneakers and Mickey would always yell at me like well why can't you design a great sneaker and I used to argue back uh, very respectfully that, you know, you can't. Their shoes are a little bit different than apparel. You can't recreate history and, and you, can't, you can't bring back something or, or make something that, had, you know, the, the great thing about Jack Purcell, it's been around for 50, over 50 years, you know, at least at the time. And um, so we started doing that. That did really well. And then I convinced him that we should do a collaboration with Red Wing. And then that's when the whole thing took off. Yeah, that's when Mickey- Dimex, like, You hit, you, 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 you did all the greats really, but all yeah. from a consumer perspective, a very attainable level. 
You know, that's, yeah. that's what I think was the brilliance of it. It was very J. Crew appropriate for that yeah. consumer. You very much get brand, not only from price point, which, you know, as a merchant, I'm sure Mickey really appreciated, but mm. from, a, you know, from, from a brand ethos. And so I think that's, that's amazing. And it's almost like a special superpower. Um, so to your brand, and as you're starting and launching this company with, with all the know-how that you have, best in class, previous employers, um, you name it Todd, Todd Snyder, which like many, many, 90% of designers before you, um, was there thought that went into that process? Was it just a foregone conclusion that you'd name it after yourself? And then I always love the two part question, you know, flip to American Eagle Outfitters investment in you and acquisition, you know, did you, did you have second thoughts about having named it after yourself, given that someone acquired the brand and therefore acquired your name? Well, um, given the fact that you were my lawyer at the time, um, I feel I was protected enough to at least Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's, that's something I've always appreciated. I remember, um, you know, starting out and doing your own collection, is scary in a lot of ways. Um, it's very expensive. Um, not a lot of people make it. Um, I was really fortunate when I launched my collection, I was picked up by uh, exclusively, meaning that I didn't sell to any other department stores and Neiman's because they were they're owned by the same company. And that's that used to be the recipe for success, meaning like if they pick you up and you're exclusive, that means you can write your ticket. Um, that didn't necessarily come true. I had to, it was really scrappy. There was a lot of moments where like, why did I do this? Um, but we had great success. And I think the, the biggest success I had was I, we launched our website the year after, you know, we were picked up by Bergdorf's. And that all of a sudden gave us an avenue to explore and really express who we were and start telling the brand story. Um, and that is the reason why I'm here today. It's really having that direct consumer channel was so important. Um, but, you know, back to your, your question about the name, I, I did struggle with it. I did struggle a lot. It took me, I didn't, I didn't want to call it something. I wasn't really thinking about if I sold this or I, I definitely wasn't that pragmatic. I was a little bit more is it too egotistical to call it Todd Snyder? That, that was the biggest struggle I had. Is it, and actually the best advice I ever gotten was from a good friend of mine. We worked together at, at, at Ralph and we worked together at J. Crew was from the fellow designer, Tim Hamilton at the time. And Tim was like, no, you have to call it your name. Like you have to invest in your name. People want to know it. It doesn't seem like it now. And, and he really pushed me to call it Todd Snyder, because I was going to call it, my dad had an engineering company, I was going to call it Snyder Engineering, I was going to, I, I just was scared to be like, here's me, Todd Snyder, why would anybody want to wear my name? It's just, it's just one of those confidence things that I didn't really have at the time. But because of Tim, I really kind of pushed me over the edge to do it. Um, and Frank Mugens, um, he and I were really close. And funny story. Um, Frank and I, you know, we worked together forever. We're very, very good friends. We met each other at Ralph Lauren. Um, I just always felt he was, he and Tim were the most talented people I ever worked with. And so I brought them to J. Crew. 
And um, Frank and I were actually supposed to go do this together. So I was always struggling with, are you coming? You know, um, so I had left in 2009. The plan was for me to, you know, make enough money so I could bring him on. I ended up calling up him up in 2011, 2012. And he was like, oh, he was, oh, no, he was, I'm not leaving because the business was like, you know, through the moon and then some. And um, so he ended up not joining me, but he had great success on his own at J. Crew. So that was the real, also the reason why I was a little kind of wishy-washy on the name too, because I didn't want to call it Todd Steiner because he, he wouldn't come. So there was, there was definitely chatter between us about calling, you know, Frank and Todd or who knows what. Um, because the interesting thing about my name, Snyder's actually Dutch and Frank is Dutch. So Snyder, I didn't know this until later on when I decided to become a design major, um, that Snyder in Dutch actually means tailor. Wow. Which for me, I was like, there you go. I did not know that. <laughs> it actually means cutter in, in, in Dutch, but um, a cutter is actually a really important person in the tailoring yeah, process. Go to the Savile Row, which I know you've been to many, many times, and they'll tell you the cutter's the most important. The cutter's most important. They're actually the ones that are cutting the garment to your body. They're the ones that are, it's a very, it's probably the most important, like a sewer, anybody can sew a seam. It's like looking at somebody's body and making sure that it fits just right. That's the cutter's responsibility. It's not someone who just cuts out a pattern. They're actually almost paper almost like a sculptor in a way um anyway um so that was kind of the hesitation to to really name it that and then after talking to tim and then finding out that frank wasn't going to join me which was kind of a um i went for it and um i you know it was one of those things i was always nervous and got super lucky that i made some great connections when i was at j crew one being jim moore um, who is the, you know, head creative director of, of GQ and was more on the program a, a couple of months ago. And he's incredible. And, you know, all, everything kind of circles back to, to GQ in the Midwest. He's from Minnesota, as you know. Um, and he was the one that told me, I remember seeing him at a, at a trade show in Vegas at project trade show. And we all used to be um very into like you know going to the trade show waiting for jim moore and the gq team they would they would travel in packs of like 10 and they basically would you know walk the the aisles of the trade show and i remember i brought my duffel bag i was in someone else's booth and with a specific goal of getting to jim and saw him and it, i was giddy and opened my bag, started pulling out samples. And at that point he was like, it's time, it's ready for you. You know, you're ready to, to take it on. And I was 41, 42 at the time. And that was like the best news ever. And he's, you know, he's always been there for me. And in fact, you know, we, we get to work together now. He does all, all of my shows and does all of our, anything photography based or anything kind of art direction and things like that. He's really involved with every step. And so I'm really blessed that I've met some great people in the industry that have helped bring me along. But, um, but yeah, you know, fast forwarding 10, we're actually 10 years old this year. Um, it's, it's been a great journey. It's, uh, 
I got, I worked my ass off, you know, I, I definitely, you know, worked for the best and, you know, I wanted to launch my own collection when I, you know, felt like I knew enough to do it. And I think that's, what's helped me stay afloat, you know, not to spend too much money, not to do too many crazy things. Um, and, and collaborations has been one of the biggest, um, vehicles to really kind of amplify who I am, you know, when I started 10 years ago, nobody knew who I was. My kind of theory has always been that everybody knows who champion is. Everyone knows who Timex, Red Wing, uh, L.O. Bean. Um, and uh, those help amp amplify the brand. It's really been much more of a business decision. It's also fun to do and I love doing it, but it was really more, you know, kind of slanted on the business side of things to really amplify the brand and not spend a ton of money in marketing and and we don't we don't spend as much as people would think on marketing no what's great about it is it really it's almost like going back to i'll trade you a chicken for two goats or i'll trade you 10 <laughs> chicken for two you know it's, it's 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 barter in a way and i love the way you articulate it you know amplification or you know brands just kind of giving you a lean in and hey step on my shoulder and go up not that you're pushing down and they you know but but Obviously, all ships rise with a good collaboration. Um, and I think that's right, that you get so many more eyeballs, which today are more expensive than ever, but certainly were expensive a decade ago as well, uh, yeah. on the product in, uh, in that mode to discover, right? Because they know what Red Wing stands for. Their grandfather knew what Red Wing stand, you know, stood for, same with Timex, but they're potentially a new customer. And we all know customer acquisition is... Really, the most expensive thing these days. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I I would and I would probably say customer acquisition. You know, it's interesting as as you know, I come at my business slightly different than most designers do. I'm I'm much more analytical than most designers. Much more pragmatic than designers. You know, when you think of stereotypical designers, I mean, there's definitely people out there that are great at what they do and. You know, Ralph being one, Brunello being another one that are mindful of the business side of things and are very good at what they do. But that's the thing I always armed myself with. And I think the lesson I learned from Mickey was making sure that I surround myself with people that can help balance the ship and making sure that we're not too forward, but we're also not too behind. Um, and collaborations for me was a great way to really bridge a lot of the the marketing that you would typically spend when you launch a brand. So typically when you launch a brand, you end up spending, gosh, when you're launching a brand, sometimes people will be spending 30% of revenue on, on, and some people spend more and that's why they go to business. But, you know, typical business that's successful, you know, you, again, these are billion dollar businesses spend less than, you know, 5% on marketing. Um, if you did that starting, you just would never get known. And so it's always a balance of how much you spend to get. And the whole machine has changed since 20 years ago. It used to be get yourself into Bergdorf's, get yourself into GQ, um, do an ad, do a billboard, and maybe some bus kiosks and some taxi toppers and you're off, you're, you're off to the races. Now you have a brand. It's completely changed now, as, as you alluded to, it's all digital, it's all performance, and it's a different 
different way of talking to the customer. You know, it's social, it's, there's so many channels now that you have to look at differently and you, but you have to be in sync. So we've done a really good job and, and I watched a lot of the, you know, direct consumer brands, whether it was Bonobos or Untucket or Warby or what have you. And that's where I started changing my marketing lens and learning from them and really focusing on performance marketing and, and making sure that social is strong, whether it's Instagram or Pinterest, you know, Facebook is still important. You know, a lot of people still are, are following that. Um, How does the store, which is magnificent for anyone who's ever been, it's, um, you know, it's a little mini mall of, uh, of menswear, haberdashery and, and barber and, and coffee, et cetera. Um, and whiskey from time to time. Um, how does the store fit into that? Um, and then how do influencers, to the extent you, you actually reach out to them or they arrive organically, fit into that mix? Um, well, the store itself, we have uh, three stores now. And the store itself is really, I feel like today, it's much more of an ad and, and a discovery point for the consumer. It really acts as that ultimate destination. You know, a lot of people ask me, what's your brand? What's it about? You know, it's an American menswear designer. We make contemporary, but you know, I can go through a whole spiel. But as soon as I put, if I put them in the store and said, this is my brand, I don't have to say a word. They go, I like, I get it. I love it. I want to be it. And, you know, whether they're buying the books from there or the furniture from there or ESOP um, or getting a haircut or getting a coffee uh, or getting a suit tailored. We actually have a tailor in the back as well. I wanted to make it a one-stop shop for the guy, but I also wanted to make the ultimate expression of who the what the brand is. It's really a, a casual place that you can come and not feel like you have to be part of a club. You don't, you feel like you, you can shop on your own. It's approachable. And it kind of demystifies fashion for men. And then that's really the goal. And, and one of my favorite things is a customer came in and said to me, what I love about your store is, is I know New Balance sneakers are cool, but I don't know which ones to buy. However, when I come into your store, you've got the four. And I know if I pick one of those four, I'm going to be cool. And my, you know, my friends are going to be making fun of me. And it's as simple as that. It's a lot of that kind of stuff where you want to feel confident about what you're wearing and you want to be able to do it in a place that you feel comfortable and not intimidated by the staff or what we're offering. And that's really what it's about. It's what the entire brand's about. And it goes back to the days when I used to work at the men's store, but ours in, in Iowa, it's, it's, they were just so helpful. Every time you'd walk in, they remembered your name and they were just there to help you and not to make you feel uncomfortable. It was really, if anything, they tried to make you feel like you belong and, and don't worry, we got you. We'll, we'll tailor it for you, what, what have you. And that's why it was super important to have a tailor on staff because there's a lot of people who have different body types, you know, and it's important, you know, if you're a skinny kid and you need a suit tailored, boom, we got you covered. And, and it's one of the things that I feel like gets left out a lot is the fit of garments that at the end of the day, nobody likes to be like stuck in, you know, 
a jacket that doesn't fit well or pants that you know right up on you know your keister um it's something that you you need to address but it, and then you also look great i mean everybody loves i'm sure everybody would love to think oh my butt looks great in these jeans i mean that's usually i think what most women certainly do and i know men do too um it's yeah. good you know it's good to have well tailored clothes so anyway long story short the store itself was really kind of meant to be that beacon to kind of give the ultimate um, expression of what the brand is. Um, and I'm forgetting your second part of your question. Oh, let's let's stay on the store, and then I'll ask the second part of my question as a question. Um, you know, I, I think we've all had those experiences, unless your father was, you know, a corporate lawyer or your grandfather was a judge, or what. You know, the, the suit, suiting and tailored clothing were in the family. That first experience of, of buying a suit, which I think I did at either Bergdorf's or Barney's is, is horrifying, you know, because <laughs> you're young, you, you look young, you don't have a lot of money, you want the right suit, you want to fit in, you want to feel like this is, you know, you don't want anyone sort of looking at you sideways because you're making the wrong choices about whether it's cuff or, you know, no cuff, you know, drape, all of it. And I will say, with all due respect to Bergdorf's and Barney's, which are great retailers, well, one's gone, um, it was just a, just a trademark, but um, it, was never, it was never comfortable. It was never the same person. I will say, yeah, your store definitely has, it toes the line of feeling clubhouse, but like inclusive, no membership fee, you know, yeah. no sort of social background that you need to check boxes on to, to come in. And, um, and that's the brilliance because once you're in, you're absolutely right. You're getting a three-dimensional representation of the Todd Snyder brand. It speaks for itself. And you know that could take you very far afield into books, into mascot eyewear, into furniture or into the apparel. Um, so now to the second part of the question, which is influencers and how they fit into that overall marketing scheme um, which we've already articulated as collaborations, as traditional, you know, presentations or, you know, some form of what used to be the runway show, um, the store itself, and now influencers, do they have a role in that, in that whole sort of stew of, of marketing elements? Uh, certainly. I mean, I think they're, and, and you can kind of break them up into two different levels. I mean, there's multiple different levels, but, um, I would probably throw in celebrities as, as a huge, uh, that's kind of like the ultimate influencer. Um, and then you have, you know, the people like Nick Wooster, who's probably a professional influencer. And then you have some younger, um, lesser known influencers. They, they all play a part. And you, we, I've been really, really fortunate you know, this, you mentioned the store, and I think one of the biggest components of the store that is really responsible for its success is the staff. I ended up hiring, my head of the stores is uh, Trey Romeo, who he and I worked together when we opened the liquor store um, at J. Crew, And he had the best personality. He's like, um, I mean, honestly, he's got so much energy. It's, it's intense, but he, in a good way, and he's so good at hiring people and he has so much energy my favorite thing to hear from customers is they talk about the staff like i love the people at your store for me that's the best compliment i know it looks great i know we've got great product but when they focus in on the staff that means we're doing our job 
that means that they talked to the staff, they felt they were taken care of, um, everything else kind of falls in line. Um, but getting back to your question with the influencers, what's really great about my staff is they're all connected. They know people um, in the industry, whether it's stylists, um, whether it's just cool people, um, they know how to plug into that scene. Part of that accessibility for me is also just the design process that you seem to go through involves definitely a nod to, to London tailoring, um, military inspired, you know, utilitarian function. And it definitely resonates with most guys. You know, I would say most guys feel very comfortable walking into the store, wearing the clothes. And, you know, you, you can't say that at Versace. You can't say that, you know, you can't say that at a lot of places, um, which, which still seemingly do well. How, how do you account for that? I mean, is there something in your design process where, um, you know, you sort of have that magic touch where it still feels like fashion? You know, mm -hmm. it's not a regurgitated version of the same suit, but it's accessible to, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna say the ordinary guy because none of us are ordinary. Everybody's, you know, their own unique snowflake, but you know, to, to a lot of guys. Yeah, I think that comes from my upbringing. I mean, I think being, you know, from the Midwest, definitely gave me a lot of pragmatism that I, I use in my design process. I, I like to travel a lot, as I mentioned earlier. You know, my favorite places to go, as I mentioned, were London and Tokyo, but I, I traveled the world. I love going to LA. I love going to Seattle. I love, you know, I went up to Maine last year for the first time in my life, was blown away, fell in love with it. Um, south of France, uh, you know, Southern Italy, Milan, you name it. I love traveling. I love watching people and seeing what they wear. So what I do is I reimagine what I would wear or what my customer would wear in that setting. Because it's a lot, what you wear in New York is completely different than what you would wear in, in you know, Palm Beach. And it's different than what you would wear in, in Des Moines, Iowa. So you still, but you still want to look your you still want to look like you're feeling comfortable with what you're wearing and you have this kind of sense of style. And I've always kind of looked at Hollywood as kind of like my North star, as far as like the cool guys, you know, whether it was, you know, back in the day, day James Dean or Paul Newman, um, Steve McQueen, they all kind of epitomize style for me. And, and this, back in the days before there were stylists, you know, before there were people that did it professionally. Right. But Paul Newman, to me, just epitomized menswear style. And I, I still look at old film from him or old photographs. And it's just incredible what he wore. Uh, and he was so on point. You know, even when he was casual, he was on point. And even when he wasn't on a movie set, he was on point. It just was incredible, his style. And I think that's kind of how I look at style is kind of having that, who is that guy? What is my style? And you need to feel comfortable at the end of the day, but at the end, of the, at, you also want at the end of the day to feel like you're looking your best. And that's always been my mantra. And I think a lot of my customers feel that way. And I think it's really important for them to kind of explore who they are, but they also need a guide. And, and we really, act as your guide and and when i design my collection i try to reimagine 
you know, thinking about my best sellers as almost customers and thinking about like, wow, I, you could wear this there, or you could wear this, you know, somewhere else. And, and it's a lot of times, and I, as I said before, I use, you know, food as an analogy, but a great chef, you know, doesn't reinvent a meat. They, they take all the ingredients and they mix them up differently to make something new. And it's the same way with fashion. It's the same thing with architecture. It's like you take the ingredients you have and it's how you put them together that you may have a suit that you want to wear a sneaker with, or you may have a trouser that you break up from the suit that you wear with a, a denim jacket. There's so many variations that guys don't know. And it's, it, it's hard. It's, it's, you know, we don't come pre-wired to, to wear things a certain way. And, and women are completely different. Women watch women, women study women and what they wear. They look at fashion magazines, they, they watch movies and they're always studying, oh, I could wear that. Whereas men aren't quite, there are some, but aren't quite wired that way. And so we kind of have, have to act as that kind of interpreter for them. And really like the gentleman I mentioned to you before who came in, I don't know which one to buy, but I know if I buy one of those, I'm fine. And then he can see it on our website. He can see it in store. He can see it in staff. He can see it. We do a catalog eight times a year. And it really acts as a guide for the guy. And it's really kind of how we bring the customer along so they don't feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, I love hearing about some of your personal style icons, which have bled into the brand, as well as you know, some, of the, some of the guys who, who wear the brand. Um, and I know that Tokyo and London for you are two cities of style. So exempting those, I'd love to hear, particularly because, you know, I do think that that perspective of thinking of your guy in a random setting kind of can inform your design, you know, for a particular season. What's an unexpected city that we may not think of as, um, you know, a, a stylish city? that uh, you visited or that you want to visit, but you've seen enough, you know, from it, you got enough data points to say, hey, this is, um, you know, this is Milan 2.0. <laughs> um, that's a really good question. I could probably name four or five, but, um, you know, starting in the United States, it's probably Nashville's very interesting setting. Austin is a very, Austin, Texas, a very, interesting city city to kind of to um to watch um you know for me when i travel i mean i'm sometimes just on the plane watching people and it's really more or less just see what people are wearing i'm just interested i'm always interested i'm always you know studying what people wear from the sneaker to the bag to the you know whatever it is it's just a really I think that's one of my favorite pastimes is just watching people. It's such a reflection um, of a conscious decision as well, right? Yeah. I mean, you can tell based on what someone's wearing, unless they just got out of jail and were given a, a bag of what they yeah. went into jail with, that, you know, these are conscious purchase decisions and then what to put on that morning. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm the same way, but don't, don't let me break your flow. I love those first two in the U.S., any more in the U.S. or outside of the U.S. that you think are sort of up-and-comers on the style? Um, I mean, I think not necessarily U.S., but one of the coolest cities, um, you know, is Canada and Vancouver is just, they got it going on. Like, they got some really cool style. They're very influenced by Japan and Asia. 
um but they act like a, a very stylish city i think they're definitely my north america pick um but then you know i think i would love to visit visit buenos aires um i envisioning that they dress very cool down there um Mexico you know, my City. wife's argentinian so so i've been down there a couple yeah. of times and nice. yes it is you you do have to go and then okay. you have to go out to mendoza where you know sort of the vineyards are and everything and the the elite of buenos aires are sort of at play because it's a very cool fusion of european meets just a kind of a, a south american functionality which is hard to articulate because it's different than the north american version uh, yeah so and and you know big horse culture as well yeah interesting yeah i mean there's so many great cities in in the u.s i that's why i love traveling I, I went to maine as i mentioned earlier that was one of my favorite discoveries of what i love about maine is they're very unpretentious that's just something they're pre-wired that is just they're you know they're just but they have a very interesting functional style you know depending on where you go that you know especially portland is really cool um that's just really interesting so i got a, i you know did a collaboration about a year ago with them and it just was huge huge success and i traveled there a lot to kind of get the vibe of it you know pre-pandemic but um internationally i think there's just so many places i can't even pick one but i think i would really i've never been to sweden um i would love to go those are moments where like it could be just a person that i see that's like oh my gosh that guy has great style and it's different than what you typically see and that's what i'm always looking for i'm always looking for that someone with great style that just has a little bit of a twist that just makes it new and that's essentially what i try to do in my collections and 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 that's that's kind of the that's kind of it well, let's bring it slightly back to business because we're coming off the pandemic um, and, you know, we went 18, 20 months of people effectively doing business in this environment, you know, the, the little box where they rarely put a suit on. Um, what are you seeing or what are you preparing for as a brand and as a retailer uh, for the man who is maybe now working remotely for the foreseeable future? You know, you're seeing trend changes. Um, you know, obviously the suit is uh, is something not of a bygone era, but but perhaps less relevant. So, what are you seeing, and what are you preparing for? Well, I mean, I've a lot of people have asked me this question: Is the suit dead? And I am here to tell you, no, it's not. Um, as long as there is competition to get a job or a high paying job or get a raise, people are always going to try to dress their best. I am a firm believer, and I will say this to people that don't believe it, you should, the better dressed, the better you will do in business or any business, whether it's, you know, if you're a lawyer, if you're an accountant, if you're a teacher, the way you dress and the way you present yourself is a, the biggest reflection. It's the one thing people see immediately. If you didn't comb your hair every day and you came to work and people would think like, oh, this guy's, this guy's a slob. He doesn't care about himself. How can he care about work? Same thing goes with a suit. Same thing goes with, 
you know, what you wear. I mean, if you wear a tuxedo to work, people won't take you seriously because they think you're, you know, a fool. But if you wear flip-flops to the office, they think you're a slob and you're lousy at your job because you're too lazy to, to, to wear something. And as long as there's that competition, I'm a firm believer that the suit's always going to be the thing that really differentiates, um, you know, one from another. And I think that for me is never going to go away. But your earlier question about fashion trends, certainly in the last year, we sold more sweatpants than we ever had in the last 10 years. <laughs> sweatpants, shorts, sweatshirts, hoodies, all of that, we crushed it all last year. Fast forward, we didn't sell a tuxedo. We very, very rarely sold a suit. However, fast forward to today, we're selling suits like they're going out of style. We had someone in our store on Saturday that did six made-to-measure suits. I could tell probably the same thing you said earlier, these gnomes from the- COVID, the COVID gnome who sprinkles the uh, reduction waistband on, uh, on yes. your, your uh, trousers. A lot of a lot of guys are going through the same. And also a lot of guys are ready for to start something new. It's kind of a way to kind of out with the old in with the new um a lot of people are getting married right now um you know for last year there's a lot of pent-up demand a lot of people postpone uh weddings i was one of them i'm engaged for a year and a half now um and uh yeah so there's a huge demand right now for suits we don't have enough we're trying to make them as fast as we can it definitely things are changing and shifting i do think the one thing that i'll give you a nice little tidbit on is the elasticated waist suit and the jogger have been accelerated and have been accepted by the man. So most guys who wear suits would never wear a drawstring elasticated, elasticated waist. So basically, you know, it stretches, you know, you, most men buy a 34 or 36 or what have you, or get it tailored. These, you can kind of go up or down a size or two. Um, but they're actually really cool right now. And a lot of guys are wearing them because they're wearing them with sneakers. They wear them a little bit more cropped so you can see the high top of the sneaker or show off your sock, depending on your age. Um, but it's definitely been accelerated. Before no, we sold no, them- No belt loops? Has belt loops. So the, the nice thing about ours is it has belt loops. It has a drawstring. And you the way I designed or engineered the waistband is you can actually bring the drawstring on the inside right and tie it or you can pull the drawstring out completely and add a belt and you're good to go mm -hmm. so no one needs to know yeah yeah and it's been one of our fastest selling pants and shorts that we've made because it is kind of the style right now and and yeah. it might have been pandemic led i think it definitely had influence but it's the guy gets it now he's like oh perfect i can do this and you don't have to worry about your waistband digging into your tummy or what have you, or, or your pants falling off if you're too skinny or what have you. So it, it kind of fills the need for a lot and I, guys are ready for it. So, well, I'm, I'm waiting for the return of DAC straps as well, because those are brilliant. Although I guess the dry cleaner finds them hard to kind of <laughs> clean around, but still they, they accomplish the same thing. Yes. Um, 
Listen, Todd, we are unfortunately out of time. I feel like you and I could go for six more hours. Um, any last, well, there's always a hackneyed question I ask, and I'm going to leave you with that. For you, Todd Snyder, what is the difference between fashion and style? That's a very good question. Um, the fashion to me is, is more of a way to really describe an industry and it, it's a little more general, whereas style is more personable. You know, it's really more about your own sense of style. And, and to me, that's where people kind of get lost. Everybody thinks this fashion as this four letter word. And really, it's about you taking what's going on out there, editing it down into the things that you want to create your own style. That, that, and that to me is the difference between the two. Yeah, spot on, at least from my perspective. All right, well, Todd, <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Listeners, thanks for joining in and um, we'll see you next time. Great. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.hbalp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.